So this is definitely the most difficult session because we've just eaten and kickoff for the South Carolina game. I know it's like at 7. We're not going to be out by 7, but maybe shortly thereafter. And you can watch the, uh, I don't know. Yeah, second half of whatever that game's going to turn into. We'll just put it that way. Whatever that game's going to turn into. Um, so uh, this evening, we're going to look at Joel 2, uh, but just the first half of that chapter. So uh, verses 1 through 17 is what we're going to look at tonight. But before we get to it, uh, when I was, um, goodness gracious, 6th grade. So, yeah, somewhere around those days. When I was late elementary, early junior high, my family lived in Missouri. Um, with my dad being a preacher, and before that he was in the military, we moved around a lot. So I always have to kind of date myself, like what grades I was in and where I was there for those grades. But we lived in Missouri, southeast Missouri. And when I was in sixth grade, I had the distinct privilege of being on the school safety patrol. So I had the sash I got to wear, you know, and I would uh, help with the crosswalk and, you know, these other great responsibilities. The best thing about it was, did you, did you get to do that too? Oh, Okay. You did, okay. And one of the best things about it was you got, to, um, you got to come into class a few minutes late and you got to leave class just a few minutes early to help with that sort of thing. Well, one of the responsibilities uh, that I had was each morning, uh, right after the bell rang, I went outside and locked up the bike rack. It was a you know, uh, chain link cage where all the kids who rode their bikes to school you know, parked their bikes and then there was a, a door. And that was my job. I went out there and got a chain and a master lock and locked it up. Well, one morning, uh, I did that, locked it, turned around, and was about to start walking back into the school when all of a sudden I just heard all the bikes behind me start rattling. And I turned around, and sure enough, all the bikes were rattling, and the chain I had just put on the, the gate started like working its way down, and I realized that, that it wasn't just the bikes that were rattling and shaking. Everything was shaking. I was shaking. Everything was shaking. We were having an earthquake. Um, in that part of uh, the country, uh, southeast Missouri, northeast Arkansas, there's a pretty major fault line uh, that runs under the ground there. The issue is they just haven't had an earthquake there in decades. Y'all have had some slight tremors around here the last few years, haven't you? So you can relate. And this, this earthquake, even though it shook everything, wasn't devastating. It was like a 4.6, so it was enough to like get everyone's attention. <clears throat> I think some windows broke, but nothing like you know buildings falling down or people getting hurt. But it was, a, it was a pretty big uh, event for our area. And that meant, you know, all kinds of geologists and seismologists kind of descended on, on the region following that, trying to figure out, wow, this thing's been silent for all these years, and now we have this tremor. Well, one of those scientists took it upon himself to predict that that was the forerunner of the big one. The big one was coming. And he went so far as to predict a date. It was that this happened, this little one happened, it was sometime near the beginning of the school year, so somewhere in September, and he predicted it was like December 3rd or December 4th. It was a specific date that he predicted that we were just going to get rocked. This like big eight or nine on the scale was just going to hit the area. Well, you know, the media caught wind of that and they just made a huge deal of it. I know you can't imagine the media blowing something out of proportion. But they did. Uh, it was all over the news, at least in that section of the country, that you know, Dr. So-and-so predicts you know, major earthquake on December 3rd or 4th. And, and sure enough, leading into that week, schools canceled. We didn't go to school that week. Businesses closed down because everyone was certain we were going to get hit by this big one. Everybody was hunkered in their homes. You know, people had like their earthquake kits, kind of like you'd have like a hurricane kit. You know, they had their earthquake kits. They were just convinced it was going to happen. 
Guess what? <laughs> it never happened. I, I, to this day, the big one hasn't come. That was, that was 1991, I think it was. So, you know, that's, that's forever ago. Still hasn't happened. I think they've had a few tremors, kind of like we've had in this area. But nothing. That was like the biggest earthquake, that little 4.6 that day. So, you know, you had this guy who was just absolutely sure that this was going to happen and, and nothing. Well, unlike the failed predictions of scientists... The threat of judgment that Joel was preaching about in this book was very real. That, that plague of locusts that we looked at in our last session from chapter 1, that was the, the forerunner. That was the 4.6, so to speak. That was the tremor. That was the warning to God's people that if they didn't heed the message that Joel was preaching, the big one was coming. The, the day of the Lord was coming. Now, let's be honest for a minute. Judgment, as, as we find in the book of Joel, God's judgment is not an easy message to hear. I mean, this isn't the most upbeat sort of message we have this weekend right now. We're hearing about God promising to judge His people for their sin. It's not an easy message to hear. And be, let me be very clear. It's not an easy message to preach. But, but, but when God gives His prophet a message, He has to deliver it. Think about Jeremiah. You know, the prophet Jeremiah preached to Judah as well, and he preached a message of coming judgment. And he was opposed every time he did. If you read through the prophet, uh, the book of Jeremiah, you see over and over again, the powers uh, that be at the day and age were, were constantly opposing him and constantly threatening his life. And Jeremiah didn't like it. He didn't like the message he was asked to preach. In fact, in, in Jeremiah 20, he even says that if he tried to remain silent, if he tried not to preach this word of judgment that God gave him, he said, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up within me, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot. So judgment is not easy, but, but Jeremiah had to preach it. Joel, as we're seeing here, he had to preach it, and, and by extension then tonight, even I have to preach it. And, and while judgment is hard to preach and it's hard to hear, as I mentioned in our last session, there is a gracious nature to it. God is under no obligation. Think about this. God owes us no warning, does He? When, when, when He gave Adam and Eve the rule, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from the day you eat of it you will surely die, that could have been the only judgment He ever gave. I mean, the only warning He ever gave. When Adam and Eve reached out and took that fruit, right then and there, God's judgment could have fallen and destroyed them. And at any point thereafter, God is in the right because He is the Creator. He is holy. He would be in His right to, to bring judgment without warning. He's under no obligation to us to offer word of warning. And yet, He does. And the fact that He warns His people over and over again is a signal that He does desire to see people repent and be reconciled to Him. And that's what we're going to see in our passage tonight. Joel is not only going to deliver further warning of God's coming judgment, that day of the Lord we've been talking about, but we're also going to see a very gracious offer to repent and return to the Lord so that the disaster and the judgment could be avoided. So this is a, this is a message then that Judah desperately needed not only to hear but to heed, just as it's desperate, uh, it's desperate for us in our day and age to hear and heed as well. So let me read the first 17 verses of Joel chapter 2. 
Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge. Like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army. For His camp is exceedingly great. He who exalts His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to Me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where? is their God. Let me pray for us once more as we come to God's Word. Lord, You hold before us this evening just as You held before the people in Joel's day, judgment and blessing. Judgment for those who would harden their hearts further, but blessing for those who would repent and return to You. So Lord, sift us this evening as we consider Your Word. Help us to see Your grace that You hold out to us in Jesus Christ. Bless us as we study. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this chapter begins with this call to sound the alarm. In in, in verse 1, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. And Joel here is using the imagery of a watchman on a tower. Now, the ancient city of Jerusalem had at its corners these tall towers that were where the watchmen would 
set their post. You know, every, every city in ancient times, and even today in the, in the military, there's always someone on watch, right? There's always a sentry. There's always on someone who's supposed to be sort of looking out and observing what's going on. And the watchman's job there in Jerusalem was to just kind of keep their eyes on the horizon and watch out for, for raiders or invading armies or, or messengers or whoever might be coming towards the city. And if there was danger, there was these large horns, uh, animal horns, that they would blow and sound the alarm, give everyone in the city warning that, that danger was coming. Well, that's what Joel is doing. Joel is the watchman here on this, in this chapter, and he is sounding the alarm of the danger that is coming to Jerusalem. The danger is found in this day of the Lord. Now, I, I mentioned the day of the Lord in, in our first session, and I mentioned that it's manifest in two main ways in Scripture. The first that we often think of is God's judgment. God's wrath. The day of the Lord is a day of, of His judgment and wrath. But it's also very often connected with His blessing as well. So there's two ways of, of experiencing the day of the Lord. It can be a fearful day of judgment or it can be a wonderful day of blessing. <clears throat> that professor I told you about in the first session, he used to look down our Bibles to see how much we use them. His name is Dr. E- is Dr. Evans. Um, he's an ARP minister, but he teaches Bible, Old and New Testament at Erskine. And he called exam day the day of the Lord. Whether it was our midterm exam or our final exam, we'd sit down in class and he would come in and he would, he would declare, behold, the day of the Lord has come. Uh, a, day of, a day of blessing and reward for those who have studied and prepared, but a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, for those who have not. And then he'd administer the exam. But that really captures both parts of our understanding of the day of the Lord. There there is judgment, but there is also blessing. And so the first half of this short book of Joel has kind of focused on the judgment, while the second half is going to focus, even as we heard the tale in tonight, going to focus in on the blessing. But first we have to deal with the judgment. And Joel begins this chapter by warning of what that day of the Lord was going to look like for Judah if they did not heed the Lord's warning. And what's really interesting is the way he builds off the imagery of chapter 1. Chapter 1, he's detailing this historic locust invasion that came in and swept through the land. And in chapter 2, he's comparing what will be an invading army to that locust, using a lot of the same imagery of, of this army that's going to come into Jerusalem, it's going to climb the walls, it's going to go in through the windows. There's not going to be a part of Jerusalem or Judah that is not destroyed by this army. And he describes this army in fearful terms. And first of all, the first thing we see is that it's an enormous army. This is no little small band of, of raiders coming against Jerusalem. This is a huge army that, that darkens the mountain in its appearance. This mountain that the people used to be able to look out and see all of its beauty and all the, the trees and grass or whatever was growing on it, but instead it is going to be darkened by their presence. There's going to be horses and chariots and all the fearful war material that would strike fear into someone's heart and they would leave nothing but death and destruction in their wake. In fact, he actually compares this marching army to a fire. And you think about what you've seen on like nature channels before when there's a, a, a wildfire 
As the wildfire moves, whether it's across the, the plains of the Midwest or, or through you know, dry forests in the, in the far west, you know, in front of it is all this, this green growing stuff, but behind it is just this black smoldering wasteland. And you watch as that fire just moves through the wilderness and burning everything good in its sight and leaving nothing but wreckage in its wake. Well, that's what Joel is painting for us here, this picture of. As this army comes forth, it devours, it destroys everything in its path, and everything behind it is just destroyed in wreckage. And the target of this great army isn't just the fields like it was for the locusts. It's Jerusalem itself. And this is where this this prophecy from Joel really becomes real for the people of Judah. Jerusalem was untouchable in their eyes. Jerusalem could not fall. Why could Jerusalem not fall? What did we say earlier was at Jerusalem? The temple. The temple, which was the, the symbol of God's very presence among His people. Jerusalem was an untouchable city in their eyes. There is no way God would ever allow any marauding army, any foreigner, to come into Jerusalem and defile it. Because this is where His temple is. This is where His presence is. Therefore, we are safe. In fact, they had come to view the temple more as like a, like a talisman or some amulet, some magical thing that safeguarded them from safety, kind of like, a, like an insurance policy. It guarded them from any kind of trouble. In fact, we see Jeremiah. In Jeremiah's book, God take the people to task for this, this idolatrous view of the temple. In, in Jeremiah chapter 7, God once more is offering a word of warning to this same group of people, and He says, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. But do not trust in these deceptive words. And listen to what these deceptive words are. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah repeats that phrase three times. It was almost like the people of Jerusalem would say that in that way. Like a, like a magical incantation. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Three times you could say it, and somehow you were safe because now you've invoked the, the protection of God's temple or something along those lines. But Jeremiah goes on to say, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? You see what the people were doing. They were living however they wanted, in in sin and debauchery, but then they would show up at the temple walk through the the rites of their religiosity, calling on the name of the Lord as if that somehow bound God to protect them. And then they go right back to living the life they want to live with, with no fear of trouble coming their way. Well, Jeremiah goes on, through the, uh, or the Lord goes on through Jeremiah to say, Therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, he's speaking of the temple, I will do to the temple as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all of your kinsmen and the offspring of Ephraim. 
Do you know what Shiloh was? When, the first, when people first entered the Promised Land, before Jerusalem had been captured and built up, Shiloh was the place appointed to worship the Lord. Shiloh was where his, we might call it the temporary temple, was established. And people would go there. But they began to wander from the Lord. They began to view it in idolatrous ways, and God allowed Shiloh to be devastated. And so he's telling them in Jeremiah that just like I did with Shiloh, don't think I won't do the same with Jerusalem and the temple. Because the temple isn't what matters ultimately. It's your hearts. And you are cheating on me, living however you want, but then calling on my name as if I am somehow bound to protect you just because you said some some magical words, so to speak. And so Jeremiah and now Joel is giving them a very rude awakening. What's the target of this invading army? It's Jerusalem. And just as the locusts entered in with ease and no one could stop the locusts, so this army will scale its walls, burst through the defenses, leap into the city, climb into houses, and enter in through windows, and nothing, no soldier, no defense mechanisms, nothing will be able to stop their destructive intentions. The ruin from this army is going to be total. The temple was not going to save them. And their hope in the temple is as empty as some of the things that people in our own DNA put our trust in, that we think are going to secure us before the Lord, but ultimately will not. How many things do people stake their salvation in, or at least their hope of heaven in, apart from Jesus Christ? As a pastor, James, you've probably heard this before. You're counseling with someone, perhaps they're nearing the end of their life, and as a pastor, you ask them, you know, what's, what's your sense of security with the Lord? And it breaks my heart when I hear it, but sometimes people will honestly look at me and say, well, I've tried to be a good person. That's, that's their sense of security before the Lord. I've tried to be a good person. I, you know, it's that old, uh, uh, I've done, I, my, my, my good deeds have outweighed my bad deeds, therefore God's going to look in favor at me. Other people point to, just to their good works. Or, or even their church involvement. Well, you know, I've been a member of this church since I was born. And my parents before me, my grandparents before them, in fact, they're buried in the cemetery and I've got a plot next to them, so I'm pretty good. I think I'm riding in on their coattails. I should be okay. It's amazing to hear what people stake their eternity in that is not Jesus. But it's stuff that sounds good and looks good, much like the temple might have sounded good and looked good to the people in Joel's day. It doesn't matter what your charitable giving is. It doesn't matter if you've been an officer in a church. It doesn't matter if you are at every function. It, those things are, are good in that they are serving. But if your hope is not in Jesus Christ, if that is not where your assurance lies, then you are in danger of judgment. Because it's only in Jesus Christ that we are saved from coming judgment. Well, as we come back to this chapter, as as frightening as this army is, as frightening as the destruction that it is leaving in its wake is, the most sobering aspect of the warning in these first 11 verses is found in verse 11. Look there for a moment. 
The very first part of this verse says, The Lord utters His voice before His army. Now, we don't know what nation this was supposed to be, what nation, what army this represented. But do you see what the Lord says? This is my army. And this is the most fearful thing. The Lord was going to raise up a nation to be His instrument of judgment. This was His army to bring judgment against the people who had deserted Him. This is the day of the Lord. When the Lord comes in His wrath and brings judgment upon His people. And the very last thing Joel says in that verse is this, who can endure it? Think about that for a moment. Who can endure the Lord's wrath when it comes? Answer? Nobody. No one. Which is true, not only in this situation for Joel, but also is true of that coming day of judgment when Jesus Christ returns. You see, the day of the Lord isn't an isolated event as detailed here in the book of Joel. In fact, what we find is that the day of the Lord occurs every time God visits humanity either with His wrath for sin or His blessing for obedience. And so we could say that when God came against Egypt during the time of Moses and the Israelite captivity, that was the day of the Lord. When He came against Egypt with those ten plagues and finally that final one being the the destroying angel who killed the firstborn of the land. That was representative of the day of the Lord. He came in wrath against His enemies, but He also came in blessing upon His people because He rescued them, He delivered them, He redeemed them from their captivity. Or we might think of the day of the Lord as represented in the overthrow of the northern kingdom. You notice Joel is is prophesying to Judah, the southern kingdom. The, The northern kingdom had already been overthrown because they had continually denied the Lord and run from Him. And so the Lord had already destroyed them and carried them off. But you know, the day of the Lord, this day of judgment, isn't only an Old Testament concept. We find reference in it, a reference to it throughout the New Testament as well. And what we find is that that every manifestation of the day of the Lord in history is all building towards that one ultimate day of the Lord at the end of time when Jesus returns. Jesus warns about it in His Gospels. Paul warns about it in the Epistles. John foresees this day coming in the book of Revelation. It is that final day of the Lord when He returns, Jesus returns, and He will judge both the living and and the dead. And for those who are his enemies, for those who have rejected him, it won't just be a day of judgment. It will be the beginning of an eternity of judgment. But for those who love him, for those who have looked to Jesus in faith, it will not just be a day of blessing, but it will be the beginning of an eternity with him. And so as I mentioned at the beginning, God is patient. And He has given us His warnings in kindness so that we will not only know in advance that there is a day of coming judgment, but so that we would not be ignorant of the danger that we find ourselves in, but understand it and turn to Him in repentance and faith. 
But what we see is that that's not just offered to us in the pages of the New Testament. Did you hear the turn that takes place in verse 12 as God offers the very same thing to the people of Judah? Look again at verse 12. After describing all of this terrible judgment that is going to come if they don't turn, God extends a, an olive branch as it were. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. I love the way that verse starts. Yet, even now. In light of everything that you've done wrong, Judah, all the ways you have deserted me and been faithless to me, yet, even now. To me, it's like Ephesians chapter 2. You know, that's the passage, a chapter where Paul begins by telling us, you know, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were by nature children of wrath, following the course of this world. But then we come to those amazing words in Ephesians 2 where it says, but God. Some of my most favorite words in all of Scripture. Because the first few verses of that chapter paint just an awful picture of our reality as broken sinners. But God breaks in and He does something about it. He shows us grace. He shows us mercy. He shows us kindness. And I liken it to what's happening here in Joel. We've seen all of these warnings of judgment, how God is going to come in and destroy the people in their sin. Yet, even now, after everything you've done wrong, Judah, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for what is He like? He is gracious and merciful, steadfast and abounding in love, slow to anger, and He relents over disaster. This this is God's nature. This is who He is and what He's like. This is how He introduced Himself to Moses and the Israelites. It's how He's reintroducing Himself to the people of Judah. And it's how He has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. Gracious and merciful to us. We don't deserve it. But this is how He acts towards us. You see, God does not give us what we deserve. He shows us mercy. He instead offers us what we don't deserve. He gives us His grace. And we see this as the heart of the gospel and perfectly manifest in Jesus Christ. We have not gotten what we deserve. Jesus got what we deserve. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's judgment. But when Jesus went to the cross, what did He endure? It wasn't just the pain of nails and and, and whipping and a crown of thorns. His real agony on the cross that day was the wrath of God that Judah deserved that you deserve and that I deserve. He was was bearing in His body God's eternal wrath for sin. And when we look to Jesus Christ in faith, what does God give us? But His record of righteousness. So Jesus takes what we deserve and He gives us what we don't deserve, which is righteousness. A righteous standing before God. And how do we access that? How do we procure that grace? How do we make that righteousness our own? By turning to God, by turning to Jesus, 
with all our heart, the exact same way Judah was called to do it as well. God told them to rend their hearts and not just their garments. Which, by the way, is a good reminder to us that God has always been more concerned about our hearts than outward conformity. Wasn't this Jesus' big problem with the Pharisees when he walked the earth? You know, the Pharisees outwardly were righteous people. That outwardly, they did everything by the book. But inwardly, they were dead. When Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs, that's what he's saying about them. Outwardly, they look nice. They've been washed outwardly. They look nice. But what does a tomb hold inside? Death, right? And so when Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, he said, yeah, on the outside you look nice, but inside there is death. And then he even quotes Isaiah to them in Matthew 15, saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so Joel tells the people here that it's only a wholehearted turning back to the Lord that will result in his relenting of disaster. Look at verse 14. It's interesting his terminology here, but Joel says, Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. It's interesting because it sounds a lot like what we hear from the king of Nineveh in the book of Jonah. Um, You don't necessarily have to turn there, but in Jonah chapter 4, well, you remember the story of Jonah. Jonah was was sent to preach a a hard message uh, to the people of Nineveh. He didn't want to go. In fact, I kind of liken my own life story a little bit to Jonah. I didn't want to follow the Lord, but I had to. Jonah didn't want to follow the Lord's leading, but he had to. He goes to Nineveh, and what does he preach? It's a message of judgment, right? Yet 40 days... And Nineveh will be destroyed. It'll be overthrown. It'll be wiped off the face of the earth. But what's amazing is as Jonah preaches that message of judgment, the people listened. And in Jonah chapter 4, I'm sorry, Jonah chapter 3, the king heard this message and we're told that he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth, and then he issued a proclamation. And listen to this proclamation. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. For who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Everyone according to the king's decree. Everyone, man and beast alike, was to show remorse. And he says, because who knows, maybe God will relent. And Joel says much the same thing. Return to the Lord because who knows, He may turn and relent. But just as in the book of Jonah, so it is here in the book of Joel, everyone has to repent. And so he lists off not only the elders, but the congregation, the children, even the nursing infants, even the the newly married, he says, have to leave their chamber. Because this repentance was of utmost priority. Well, again, as we think about then, what's what's the application of a passage like this that was written to such a particular people at a particular time? There are parallels and applications that we can draw for our own circumstances. And one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is, are we as a people, as the people of God, His church, 
Are we turning to Him and are we pleading for His mercy and grace to be shown? First and foremost, to us, His people, but also on behalf of our neighbors, on our nation, our, our, those who, who are around us who know not the Lord. Are, are, we, are we interceding on their behalf? Are we crying out to God that He would relent and show mercy? Are we making the most of the opportunity that God is giving us even now to cry out to Him? You see, the greatest hope for our world isn't isn't a cure for every disease or virus that may come around. The the greatest hope for our world isn't some some temporary peace in the Ukraine and Russia, though that would be wonderful. The greatest hope for our world is Jesus Christ. And God has given us an opportunity to make Him known. The question we have to ask tonight is, are we being faithful to that? Because we have been warned. And we have escaped the coming judgment if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. But we all know friends. We all know neighbors. Some of us even have family members who haven't heard the warning. Or at least haven't heeded the warning. Are we crying out for them? Are we broken for their hearts and their lives that right now stand in the path of judgment? Who knows? But God might relent. And He might shower their hearts and their minds with a saving knowledge by His Holy Spirit and by His Word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray that God would do that. And let us pray that God would be pleased to use us to that end. Let's pray together. Lord our God, You indeed are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, we thank You that You are a God who does relent over disaster. And we thank You that You have shown us this mercy and grace and love primarily in Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, who dwelt among us, who lived a perfect life that none of us can live, and who also died an agonizing death in our place. We thank You that even as He took our sin and Your wrath upon Himself, He also extends to all who would look to Him in faith righteousness, by which we might be made right in Your eyes, that we might be reconciled to You. But Lord, we we recognize that there is still a day coming. That final day of the Lord when Jesus Christ will return and all will bow and all will confess that He is Lord. Some of us will do that to everlasting joy, but we all have friends and neighbors right now who will do that to their everlasting terror because they have not heeded or perhaps not even heard the warning of the coming judgment. So Lord, would You then prick our hearts? Would You break our hearts for the lost in our community and in this world. And would you embolden us to be faithful and to be purposeful in sharing the good news with each and every one, knowing that in your time and in your grace, you will draw them to yourself as you've appointed. So do this through us. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.